Our reading today is from Matthew chapters 21 and 27. Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And Matthew 27, verses 15 through 26. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father God, what we are reading now is remarkable. And yet it happened, just as the Bible tells us. We pray, Lord, please open our eyes, open our ears, uh, give us an understanding of what occurred during these few days in Jerusalem so long ago, and how greatly it has affected our world. We thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice, for your giving us this word that continues to guide us to this day. 
We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that is with us and opens the scriptures up to our understanding. We give you thanks for this and for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. I said in my prayer that this is remarkable. In the brief span of four days, both of these public events that I've read to you occurred. Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as royalty with great fanfare by thousands of people. Yet within four days, he was brutally murdered by the Roman governor at the insistence of Jerusalem's religious leaders, the high priests and the Sanhedrin. He who was welcomed a hero, practically given the keys to the city, was despised as a villain, as a common criminal. He who had taught openly and healed miraculously throughout Israel for three years was mocked and spat upon while walking to his own execution. To all appearances, he died a victim. The high hopes of the multitudes that welcomed him into Jerusalem died with him. For three days, despair filled his disciples. What was to have been the joyful annual celebration of Passover filled with hope, light, life, became instead a nightmare from which they could not awaken, filled with despair, darkness, and death. Yet everything changed the following Sunday morning. Word spread that the tomb was empty, that Jesus had risen from the dead. His resurrection inaugurated a new reality, a reality no longer dominated by fear of death. Death had been swallowed up by life. A man had risen from the dead, holding the keys to hell, revealing himself to be death's conqueror and the savior of all mankind. This message is the first of two in a small series entitled Passion Week. The Gospels, the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, consist of 89 chapters. And yet 26 of those chapters, roughly 30% of the Gospel chapters, cover this final week of Christ's life. We can't cover all that happened in that week in detail, but we can highlight aspects of this week, and we'll do it in two parts. The first part today covers from Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, to the condemnation of Christ before Pilate. And the next part, next week, will cover from the crucifixion to the resurrection. And so today's message is entitled, From Hero to Villain. And next week's is From Victim to Savior. Like I said, we can't cover everything in detail. This first part covers roughly four days, and we're going to look at it from three perspectives. First, we're going to view it from the perspectives of the multitudes that were at each of these events, at the triumphal entry and before Pilate. The next view is those that were closely engaged with Jesus at each of these times, both at the triumphal entry and at the condemnation. 
And then thirdly, we'll look at the perspectives of two people closest to Jesus, two of the apostles, Peter and Judas Iscariot. We'll look at their actions and experiences these last few days. With each of these, we'll essentially move from the periphery into the core, getting closer and closer to Jesus. And so now let's look at the triumphal entry. In verse 1, we see that Jesus entered Jerusalem as he drew near. He came to Bethphage. This is right at the base of Mount Olives, just a couple miles from Jerusalem, from the gate. And we know from last year when uh, Pastor Kaiser preached on this on Palm Sunday, that while Jesus was entering from the east with all the animals and with this multitude of people, we had Pilate entering from the west. He had come down from Caesarea to be there this week because it was a huge crowd and he was concerned. He's responsible for Jerusalem before Rome. And so visitors to Jerusalem, the millions of people that were expected to arrive in Jerusalem, many of those that were already there could have chosen then to witness either Christ's arrival or Pilate's arrival. In verse 6, we see that the disciples go and get this donkey and colt as instructed by Jesus. Now, Jesus had traveled for three years extensively, repeatedly, all over Israel. And yet, he seems to have always walked. Except if you count the times when he was crossing the sea in the boat, and even then, when on the water, we know that he sometimes walked. Yet here he directs his disciples to bring this donkey and the colt, and it is to be a specific, detailed fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Riding on a donkey was reflecting his royalty, his meekness, his humility, that he was coming in peace. In verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And so this was an aspect of deference to this king to put their clothing on the animals such that when Jesus sat on them, he could be on their clothing instead of directly on the animals. In the next verse, in 8, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. This symbolizes these people that are gathering these branches and putting them on the road are reflecting the fact that they're honoring Jesus, they're loyal towards Jesus, they're declaring themselves to be in his service. Jehu's men did this for him when he was anointed king. In 2 Kings 9 verse 13, each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. This was them demonstrating that they were putting their clothing under Jehu to show that they are supporting him. They are uh, expressing fealty and loyalty towards him. And in the same way, these people put their clothes on the road. Other people, it says, and a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so we have perhaps olive branches and palm branches being placed on the road. 
and again, this was a demonstration of honor and respect, these branches would not have blocked Christ's path. I believe the branches were placed along the edges of the path. The clothes were put down the middle such that there is this makeshift road, this fancy avenue down which Jesus could uh, go with his disciples in this crowd. So this is meant to be a highway of honor for Jesus, a red carpet, if you will. In verse 9, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And with this shout, they declared Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. This comes directly from Psalm 118. And referring to Jesus as the Son of David is to equate him with the Messiah. In the parallel passage in Luke 19, verse 38, we read this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so you see in Luke, he refers specifically to Christ as king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees immediately called out to Jesus saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus, we know his reply. I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus is saying that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. I am entering Jerusalem and I am the king, the Messiah that was promised. Verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? That word for moved is shaken. The whole city is shaken with this. Thousands and thousands of people enter with Christ from that east gate with all the animals. And the visitors are shocked at this. Who is this? And the crowd responds, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So now that is to look at the multitude present at the triumphal entry. Now let's look at the multitude present at the condemnation that Pilate pronounces upon Christ. We read of Jesus before Pilate at the beginning in verse uh, chapter 27, starting at verse 15 and forward. After talking with Jesus, Pilate was said to call together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. That's a direct quote from Luke 23. There was a custom of releasing a prisoner as a gift to the Jews, and Pilate was honoring that custom. He had already sent Jesus to Herod when he learned that he was from Galilee, but Herod had returned him. We'll talk a bit about more about that later. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, and he sensed that the Pharisees envied Jesus. Now, Pilate is probably curious about all of this, and yet he is more concerned about the fact that he is in the midst of this city that's huge and has all this throng of people. So Pilate says, I will chastise him and release him. That's how he put it in Luke 23, verse 16. But they shouted, away with this man, release to us Barabbas. Pilate again interceded with the crowd, but they shouted him down saying, crucify him, crucify him. This crowd consisted of priests and what were referred to as the people, and that is often the leaders of the people. And so the leaders of Israel 
all the religious leaders and all of the civil leaders came together to ask for Christ to be crucified, demand that Christ be crucified. Pilate knew Jesus did not deserve to die, yet he feared what is said to be a tumult. He feared a spontaneous uprising. Jerusalem was known to be a hotbed for zealots, and he did not want that happening right here with all these hundreds of thousands of people present. So he washed his hands and then turned him over to his men to be crucified. Now, his washing of his hands does not absolve him of any responsibility. In that Christ died on a Roman gibbet means that he died under Rome's authority. He died under Pilate's authority. He could not wash his hands free of that responsibility. So now we've looked at the multitudes present at each of these events. I don't think that many of the multitude that were present at the triumphal entry are represented here in this tumult. We have two different sets of people, at least two different sets of people that are doing all the yelling and shouting. The Pharisees that were present watching Jesus enter attempted to have Jesus rebuke his disciples for what they were doing. That's the only thing we hear from them there. And yet these people that had greeted Jesus at the triumphal entry, if they are present at this second thing, they are silent. So now let's look a little bit closer at what happened at each of these events relative to people that are close to Jesus. At the triumphal entry, the evening before he had spent the night in Bethany, he had been with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now Lazarus, he had just raised from the dead, most likely just a few weeks earlier. And this was still all the buzz in Jerusalem. And it was partly what people were looking forward to. They wanted to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well at this Passover. That evening before, Mary had anointed Jesus with oil, a very, very expensive oil. And Judas, the thief, complained about this, as did other of the apostles. How could this be wasted in this way? But we know that Jesus defended what Mary had done, saying, The poor you will have with me with you always, but you I will not be with you always. And so what she has done will stand as a memorial to her wherever this gospel is preached. So it's the next day that the apostles led Jesus into Jerusalem. After getting the donkey and the colt, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. He speaks about how one stone will not be left upon another, that there will be siege ramps built up and Jerusalem will be taken. Now this multitude from Jerusalem heard that Jesus was going to come. And so they went out to greet him. They had heard of Lazarus's resurrection, as I mentioned earlier, and they wanted to see this man that had raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees, however, scoffed. John records this in John 12, 37. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And by this time, they had already hatched the plan to kill Jesus and Lazarus. I'll get to more of that later when I talk about Judas. Jesus had thousands of people ahead of him and thousands of people behind him in this triumphal entry to Jerusalem. But yet only later would 
everything become clear to the apostles as what really had happened. They didn't even know that in bringing him the donkey and colt that they were fulfilling prophecy. And now note, remember the branches and the clothing, the branches that were brought down to ornament the path and the clothing that was thrown down to pave the road before him. Keep that in mind. Now, let's look at Christ before Pilate. This is the second part of the, the point two. We read of Jesus before Pilate in Matthew 27 in our initial reading, and every gospel account has an account of Jesus before Pilate. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this dialogue between Pilate and Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responds, it is as you say. But in John's account, we have a lot more detail concerning this discourse between Pilate and Jesus. And let me read part of that to you. This is in John chapter 18, starting at verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now at this point, Pilate learns that Jesus is a Galilean. And so he thinks he can be absolved of this problem by sending him to Herod. Pilate is ruling over all of Israel and uh, Jerusalem specifically, and that, of course, being the uh, capital and this huge city is very important. But Herod is ruling over up the area up in Galilee, and yet he happens to be in here in Jerusalem for the feast, of course. So Herod sends him, or uh, Pilate sends him off to Herod. Now Luke alone relates the fact that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because he was a Galilean. And let me read to you from Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. Oh, if I can find it. Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. 
Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Note that Jesus said nothing before Herod, and this must have infuriated him. Herod regarded Jesus as something like a magician and felt that being king, he should be able to command him to perform as he does in the streets. And yet Jesus refused to do that, to merely entertain Herod. And so for that, Herod became angry. Christ's accusers came and vehemently denounced him then, and thus Herod and the soldiers mocked Jesus and placed a gorgeous robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. And yet Luke also uh, recounts that Pilate and Herod from that day, day forward were friends, that until that time they had been at enmity with one another, perhaps jealous rivals. So that's Christ before Herod. And note that Herod had never even seen Jesus yet, and yet he was the head of Galilee. It shows you that Herod didn't get out much, that he had no reason to be out amongst his people when he could just frolic in wealth in his uh, homes. Now we see Jesus uh, back before Pilate. Matthew, Mark, and John all describe Christ being mistreated by the soldiers. And this perhaps to me, even more than the crucifixion, is difficult to read about, difficult to envision in my mind. I'll read Matthew 27, starting at verse 27. So Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Earlier I asked you to remember that at the triumphal entry, they employ both branches and clothing. And here again, we have branches and clothing. The crown of thorns is woven and pressed down on his head, piercing into Christ's flesh, such that the blood then flows down. They place a reed, what is a pretend scepter, in his right hand. And so you see we have a mockery of what had occurred at the triumphal entry occurring here in the praetorium before these soldiers. The robe, the staff, the crown, and the pretend worship were all to mock Christ. So we've covered the two parts, the multitude and those that were close to Jesus at each of these events. And now I want to move on to Peter and Judas I'll begin with Judas. There are six points at which Judas is mentioned in 
not each of the Gospels, but collectively. And the points are these. The point at which they're introduced in Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, they're listed. Peter is referenced first, and Judas is referenced last. And this is what is said of Judas. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So in the first gospel of the New Testament, where Judas is first mentions, mentioned, it speaks of him as being Christ's betrayer. At the second point is where Mary anointed Jesus for burial. And Judas, as, and as I said, others were upset about this. Immediately after that, in the next uh, pericope in Matthew 26, it says that Judas goes to the chief priests. In a sense, he was outraged that that money was not put in the collection box because he viewed that collection box as his money. He was a thief, and he was taking from that. And when he saw all that expensive oil going to what he considered a waste in anointing Christ, he was angered by that because that could have been money that he had. So he went to the chief priests and gained the 30 pieces of silver for agreeing to betray Christ. At the meal before the Lord's Supper, Jesus dips his bread, hands it to Judas, and Judas then knows that he is the betrayer, and it says that Satan entered Judas. He left. Some of the other apostles think that he has gone off to buy something, but Judas and Jesus know the truth, that he's going off to betray Jesus. Later, a few hours later, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we again see Judas. And let me read from chapter 18 of John, starting at verse 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. In that response, I believe an aspect of Christ's divinity was revealed. And it put the fear of God into these soldiers who are used to being obeyed and used to intimidating everyone. And I believe it's most likely here too, where Judas is confronted again with the reality of this man that he's spent three years walking with is truly the son of God. Because the next instance that we hear of Judas is in Matthew 27, starting at verse three. And I'll read that. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, that Christ had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now let's look at Peter. Contrast him with Judas. Peter was one of the three apostles closest to Jesus. 
and we know those three to be James and John, the brothers Zebedee and Peter. These three together witnessed the transfiguration. They were invited by Jesus the night before he died to go with him deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane to be alone with him. But Peter alone walked on water to Jesus when he called him in Matthew 14. It was Peter who, when Jesus asked, what do men say that I am and who do you say that I am, that Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was Peter, whenever Jesus had dispatched a lot of his followers by being so rude to them. He said, are you going to leave too? And it was Peter that spoke for all of them and saying, to whom can we go, Lord? It was Peter who rebuked Jesus when Jesus began to talk to them for telling his death. And immediately Jesus turns on Peter and before all of them castigates him saying, get behind me, Satan. Peter and Judas were both influenced by Satan. When Jesus dipped the bread and gave it to Judas, it said that Satan entered Judas and he then went off to betray him. Pastor Kaiser, a few years ago, had a great sermon contrasting and comparing Peter and Judas, showing just how similar they were. And it was the grace of God that distinguished them from one another. When Jesus foretold their abandoning him, Peter and others denied it. And yet Jesus told Peter, you will deny knowing me three times before the rooster, rooster crows. And this occurred in the courtyard of the high priest as Jesus is being interrogated there. And Peter is sitting afar off, warming himself by a fire because it's the middle of the night. This is in Luke 22. I'll read a portion starting at verse 59. This is after he's already denied him twice. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, and elsewhere it says he cursed, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. But now, unlike with Judas, we know it doesn't end there. Peter, in his remorse, does not go out and hang himself. He suffered with what he had done in denying Christ, until Jesus painfully restores him, asking him those three times if he loves him. So now we've considered each of these three things, the multitudes at each of these events, some select individuals from each of those events, as well as two of Christ's closest 
apostles, those that spent three years with him. And that's what I said I would share, but I have to share one more perspective before we're done. We must view this from Christ's perspective. That Palm Sunday, when Jesus was about to enter Jerusalem, as he's looking down upon it from the Mount of Olives, only Jesus knew exactly what was coming over the next two days. The Pharisees were plotting. They'd been plotting for days, weeks. Judas had already contacted them and had the money in his hot little hands. But neither the Pharisees nor Judas could be sure that their plot was going to come to fruition. Only Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross. Jesus prayed in earnest the night before that to be released from this destiny. And so this, more clearly than anything, illustrates Christ's human nature. He was a man, a perfect man, and yet a man who could be open to fear, open to discouragement. And yet he always turned to his father to overcome any of these temptations for weakness. And he closes his prayer, not my will, but your will be done. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are not to fear death. We are not to fear anything except God. We are to absorb the scorn of the world without being embittered by it. We are to endure the abuse and mistreatment as Christ's body on the earth in his stead. Jesus not only saved us, but he modeled for us in these final hours obedience unto death. This is what it looks like, and this is what he would have us do. But like Jesus did that Sunday long ago, let us not focus then on any near-term suffering. Instead, let us do what Jesus did. He looked beyond the sufferings and, by the way, the pleasures of this world to the glory that awaited him in heaven. And that same glory awaits us in heaven. And so we must regard this world in the same way that Jesus did, absorbing the scorn and overcoming it, not becoming overcome by it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Christ and all that he did, what he knew was coming and yet walked right into it. We thank you, Lord, that he had the courage to do this and that you upheld him as he walked this final walk. We ask you, Lord, to give us strength to have us realize that this world is a temporary place for us and we are to just be all out for you while in this world, in this sinful place. And we pray that you would strengthen us to do so, that we would be faithful to you, 
that we would honor you by what we do, what we think, what we say. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us in this, strengthen us in this, have us to uh, find our joy in being faithful to you on this earth. We give you thanks for this and for all of your many gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.